I'm very upset about the whole lesbian situation. Um, it's, it's and I just don't want to start by crying, but I, it's so... I cry at everything. Uh, I, I'm a crier. I cry a lot. Okay. Just because it's, yeah. it's quite therapeutic, so you don't ever need to worry about okay. that. Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this is my podcast, The Best Women. In her book, Testosterone, the story of the hormone that dominates and divides us. Carol Hooven explores how the hormone is often presented as both a justification and excuse for male dominance over women. Women have far lower levels of testosterone, so it's often been argued that housework and child rearing come naturally to them. Men, on the other hand, are programmed to be hell-bent on impregnating as many women as possible fighting off male rivals and dragging a carcass home for dinner. But as Hooven acknowledges in her fascinating book, despite the undeniable effect of the hormone on our behaviour, how we relate to others is based on evolving and complex external forces. Both sexes produce testosterone, though men create up to 20 times more. Testosterone then is at the heart of the nature versus nurture debate. For feminists, it's our culture rather than hormones that most influences gendered behaviours. I connected with Carol on Zoom last week. Have a listen to our discussion. When I first read about, about your book, Testosterone, I was really intrigued because I thought, OK, this woman has every single credential of the open mind, not a biological determinist in the old-fashioned way, super bright, all of those things. Um, well, I wonder what she's saying about testosterone. I wonder. And then I thought to myself, why have I engaged with this in the way that I have, where I've done everything that I possibly could to deny its influence beyond some physical traits? That is a really interesting question. As a woman, and as a woman who has not only experienced sexual assault uh i've also experienced a huge amount of generosity and support from the men in my life so i you know like most women i've seen the full many women the full um not quite the full spectrum as you know i mean the the kind of awful end of the spectrum has a really long tail unfortunately and uh you know i haven't experienced the really horrific kind of abuse a lot of women around the world have. Okay, so that being said, um, I think it, after I spent time with chimpanzees in the wild, that or during that experience, that's when I really became convinced that cultural explanations for human sex differences and male behavior in particular uh, are not adequate. They're extremely important. I mean, that, and, and I want to talk about why that is. But if we're talking about group differences on average, and, and of course the urgent questions are the ones where people are suffering, you know, you want to address the worst of human suffering. And for me as a woman, that does have a lot to do with uh, particularly women suffering at the hands of men. That is an extreme end of the uh, male behavior that I'm interested in, but that's where the problems are. That's what I want to address, I think, most urgently. But really, I just want to figure out how things work and help people develop the tools to 
um, really think about the origins of human behavior and the practical implications of that are like science is just fun and interesting for me, but there are practical implications. And that rests on my belief that the truth of the matter, the truth of how things work about what is, is the most effective way to solve problems. And it is never, uh, well, I mean, maybe there's some exceptions to this and I'm not sure what those exceptions are. I think it's almost never productive in the long term to solve social problems. Um, it's never really productive to obscure the truth uh, because I think the truth will come out eventually. And then you're hanging your uh, progressive, say, hat on falsehoods that will become apparent. And then what are you going to do with your goals if that's what they're hanging on? So I think that's the kind of deep values I hold that guide what I'm into. And as I have been, as I wrote the book and talked about it, I've become more and more political, I think. Um, and, but that is not what drove me in the first, in the first place. I just want to explain things. And what role does testosterone play in sexual violence? Does it play a role at all? Well, can you tell me what you, I want to hear before I talk about that. I'm very interested in your view because I have enormous respect for the work that you're doing, for the approach that you're taking and I know that you, um, at least, you know, and you might have updated your view somewhat, I'm not sure, but that your view is that basically biology does not play a role or inherited biology or that it's not, you know, innate. I think that's the um, word that you've used. Um, so, yeah, I just want you to give you a chance to sort of explain that view before I explain mine. I think for feminists that, that campaign to end male violence, if we saw any of it as inevitable, then we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So part of it is, it's not utopian, it's kind of utopian, in that we have to imagine a world without it. We have to imagine a world without prostitution. And yet we're told that there's something called the male sex deficit, um, where because men want more sex, and that means that they want more sex than do women, that their female sexual partners might not be up for as much sex. So there's a group of women, prostituted women, who will take um, take the hit for that. Or, or it's something that you can explain rape by looking at the male sex deficit. And this you, is Sorry, can you say what you mean by sex deficit? There's a, an academic who has been kind of criticised, but also embraced, where she has said that prostitution, or sex work as she calls it, can be justified by looking at the fact that there is basically um, more of a need for sex from men than there are women willing to give it. And this is the kind of reasoning that men who pay for sex have tried with me, by saying that if they don't get their rocks off, if they don't manage to have sexual release, they'll have to go out and rape. And so, bearing in mind testosterone has a direct... Well, you'll tell me. Um, but certainly I've got from your book that testosterone does have a direct effect on the sex drive, the libido, whatever we want to call it. Does that correlate? Does that mean that if you take it to its kind of logical conclusion, that men need more sex, men want more sex, men are driven to have more sex... 
by which we mean that they have to have it whichever way they can. So I asked about innate and sort of biological, and you, instead of using the word innate, you used the word inevitable. Okay, so that is the the crux of the issue here, because you and I see the relationship between genetic, genetic, what I would say, predisposition um, and behavior differently. So there's a huge amount of evidence that, in my view, that yes, testosterone upregulates relative to women or relative to female animals. Um, there's sex and there's aggression. Uh, and testosterone, testosterone's action on average, not across all animals, but just on average, does um, what it needs to do to support male reproductive strategies. And because males have sperm and females have eggs, and this goes back over a billion years, the phenotype of the sex, which is physical and behavioral, has to evolve to support the fact that that organism uh, wants to distribute its gametes, basically, you know, want in quotes. Um, and females have a, a different strategy because they are not making like, tons of small mobile gametes. Okay, so if you start there and you accept the reality of the um, need for different reproductive strategies and different organisms that most people agree exist in, say, non-human animals. Like I, you know, went to Scotland and spent a little time with the um, stags and hinds, the red deer, and, uh, you know, it's blatantly obvious that males are super aggressive with each other and that that is a product of testosterone. Their antlers are also testosterone mediated. Their sperm is testosterone mediated. Their physical aggression is testosterone mediated. Their libido is testosterone mediated. Um, females are also aggressive and have a libido, but it's not the, the same in uh, you know quality and sort of quantity, basically. Okay, so if you start with that premise, um, you can see that some males are not super aggressive because they don't have the opportunity to be. Some males are not super sexual because they haven't successfully defended a territory that females want to feed on. And uh, so given just now jumping to humans, my argument is that we share a lot of similarities with these non-human animals. However, we have these humongous brains in an extremely complex and gendered culture. And there are, if you just, you, Julie, are the perfect person to comment on the variety of male, of expressions of male aggression in different cultures throughout this planet. Some cultures, it's just not allowed. It's just, you know, uh, the laws are extremely strict and you see low levels of, say, crime in general, and that's mostly committed by males. So the sex difference is much smaller and there's almost, you know, very low levels of physical, of like sexual assault, um, like Singapore, say. South Africa, uh, say you have a very different situation and many um, areas that you have traveled to, it's basically males have full license to beat the shit out of women, to rape women. And if we can acknowledge that there is this relative to women bias or tendency or increased likelihood of aggressive, violent behavior, particularly in, in sexual contexts, 
or in contexts that increase a male's ability to get sex, whether that's acquiring resources or territory or whatever. So there's male-male competition and there's male-on-female uh, control of se a sexual resource, ultimately, and objectification of that resource. Just like we might see in the red deer, those are, you know, those females are basically sexual objects to a stag. And of course, sexual objectification by men is on a, I would say on a spectrum. It depends on the culture. So the point is that I wouldn't use the word innate. I would say genetically influenced is not the same as inevitable. It helps us recognize, once we understand how that works, the power of human culture, the power of um, working, like doing the work that you're doing to raise consciousness, to influence policy. It's just so important, and you're doing it, and it's consistent with the, I would say, the framework that I hold or the, the approach that I take, which, but it means the implication, I think, is that you can we it won't ever be finished because there is a predisposition that explains everything to me it explains what we see if you it explains misogyny it explains patriarchy the physical and the behavioral mm. it explains the anger it explains the objectification if there is this drive that we don't completely understand because it is intense and it is different and it helps us recognize the intensity it doesn't validate it it doesn't condone it but it helped us see this is a real thing. This is happening in our boys and our teens. They feel this. And if we don't recognize it and talk about it and say, this is going to happen, you are going to maybe even want to take what you can get and manipulate girls or women. And let's figure out how culturally, socially, in, in terms of religion, whatever it takes, um, how to manage that and what the, how we can set up our society in terms of rewards and penalties. Uh, that's my take. I mean, it's interesting if you look at, at Scandinavia, particular countries such as Sweden, uh, Denmark, Norway and the like. And there is pretty much the same level of reported rape. That's right. Um, than in other countries. I mean, South Africa is a really interesting case study, I think. And you mentioned that earlier. And the sexual violence against women there is off the scale. And that's just yeah. what we know about. Same with Congo. Um, other countries Uganda you mentioned and I've met lesbians in Uganda that are punishment raped very regularly and present in an extremely masculine way for self-protection not because they have more testosterone than other women but that's a whole other issue I mean I don't know I yeah. haven't measured their testosterone but but in in Sweden if you look at the the, the way that the equality laws work which is in sharp contrast to some other countries in the global north and south where there are there's more poverty more inequality fewer women in parliament fewer women's rights same level of rape same level of sexual violence and it fluctuates in ways that i don't quite understand and of course how i explain that to myself when campaigning to end it is this is about a message that men get in terms of their invincibility, the fact that they're given carte blanche to do this. Often, if you ask a feminist who's in this war, which is is what it is, why do men rape? You might get an answer of because they can, because they can get away with it. So I was really interested in reading a recent book from a British feminist who I know called Louise Perry, 
she has written The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And this isn't new to, to feminists like me. We know that the sexual revolution benefited men, and apart from the contraceptive pill, um, really didn't, didn't do us any favours. But she's written a book in which she lays out um, the levels of sexual objectification, of, of violence, of the way that pornography is becoming more gonzo, yeah. more um, grotesque and harmful. But she quotes, she favourably quotes a book that I know you'll, you'll know, Rape and Natural History, um, yes. published in, in the year 2000, that I read at the time when it came out, I don't think very many that were railing against it did read it. And I have they some huge... Right, OK, so, so I've got some huge problems with this book, but I also found it really interesting. And Louise Perry quotes this book favourably. I mean, w would you just kind of give me a potted version of its central argument and what yes, you think yes. of it? The Thornhill um, piece or book and papers about this, I appreciate the approach. I appreciate anybody who's trying their, uh, you know, a good faith effort to understand the origins of really um, problematic behaviors, right? And obviously rape is one of them. I'm not convinced that rape itself is an adaptation, that there is, a, that that is, can be sort of triggered um, in the right environmental circumstances. That's the argument. So you have young, high testosterone males who really want a girlfriend. They really want sex. They really want a wife. And they are in very, very short supply. And so the argument is that something like men evolved to under circumstances like those where they cannot get sex, they will take it. And that that is an adaptation. I think they even argue that the, um, sex differences in strength and power have been influenced to some degree, not just by male-male competition, but by uh, the, the adaptive benefits of being able to directly and physically control females for reproductive purposes. Okay. And the issue of female choice, I should say, in humans and non-humans is an interesting question when we live in a society where there's always power imbalances and... Um, Female choice, I think, is not as clear-cut as people like to argue. And I think that also plays into your arguments about um, pornography and prostitution. So, yeah, I, I do believe that the heightened male aggression the, is an adaptation um, that completely depends on the environment. And that what what drives that can also drive like physical heroism that there's a increased likelihood of taking you know dangerous physical risks of um anger expressed physically of this desire of the and i think the sexual desire is something women don't understand that it can lead men obviously to the right men you know not all men um, but perhaps all men in the right culture. We know there's some cultures and circumstances like war where all men who are participating basically are raping, say, um, females that they uh, capture in wartime. So that's so I would say, yeah, this is something that we see that if men can do it, they will even quote good men. Um, so 
it may be an adaptation. I'm not convinced <laughs> by the argument. It, another possibility is that it's just um, there's the libido piece and there's the aggression piece and they happen to come together in certain circumstances. It could be that it itself is, is um, an adaptation, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I mean, feminists went crazy about that book because obviously if we are told that men need to be contained and that women need to um, socialise them or as Louise Perry says in her book when she speaks about, about a natural history of rape to, to enable men to become sexually incontinent sorry, continent to, <laughs> what a slip two, two things happen one, it, it places yet again or rather it reaffirms um, the responsibility of women and girls to control men's sexual desires and behaviour. And this is the problem for feminists, obviously. And two... Sorry, why doesn't it... Why Can I just interrupt you there? Why does it not... Why is it... Does that... If that is true, why doesn't it... Um, why is it up to women to... Because uh, there are men who can understand that that might be a fact and at the same time care about women and try to advocate for better... Uh, policies. Hmm. I suppose because it means that feminists are out of a job, that we we consider our role in challenging male violence and eradicating male violence as tackling the social norms that allow it, tackling the criminal justice system that fails women, tackling the victim blaming that means that rape isn't even recognised as rape, such as rape right. in marriage, which is still legal in a number of countries and that we in the UK um, managed to to um, criminalise, you know, as, as late as 1992. Many women still don't know that what's happening if their husbands have sex with them that they don't want, that they're not consenting to, that that's rape. So right. so we see ourselves tackling those social norms. And if there's if there's a kind of school of thought, or if it is in fact the case that men need to be contained because they're natural and, you know, these are not your words and there may not even be the words in, in the book, I haven't read it for a long time, but a natural instinct or a biological urge of men to rape, by which, or all by which I mean is to have sex with women whether or not they're consenting, then then that's pretty bleak. I mean, for example... Well, but it is bleak. Okay, I just, I just sorry, I don't mean mean to interrupt but i but <clears throat> suppose that is the truth and and if it's not how do you explain why this happens everywhere and in the right circumstances i would say every man who if they if you take a nice quote nice guy from the united states and raise him somewhere where this is completely condoned he's going to rape and because he can it's certainly not aversive even if the woman is screaming her head off, that might not in the right culture, you know, if the, that's the value, the cultural value system. Um, so the, the point is, if you think that this is somehow socially um, created, why is it created this particular way in every pocket of the planet? Um, and that has <laughs> parallels, not, you know, there are, of course, male animals who do something like rape um but uh yeah how do you then explain it um and what if it is true what if would you be open to this being true even if you thought well this kind of fucks with my um 
feminism here. It's a big thing to accept because it's the antithesis of everything that I've seen in the countries that I've visited, the women that I've interviewed, the rapists that I've interviewed, um, the research that I've done. And also the question, which I'm always fascinated to ask, is why do most men not rape or commit acts of sexual violence? And I think a sizable minority do. And I do think that for most heterosexual men, um, I doubt that there are many of them that haven't committed some lower level act of sexual... Coercion. Sexual coercion. Manipulated. Uh, absolutely. Verbally. So maybe it is yeah. most men. Um, definitely, it's like I say, a sizable minority. This is not a tiny atypical sample. But why do, why do some men not rape? Because of culture and that also in humans, pair, we have pair bonds that are adaptive for men. Uh, it's adaptive for human men to be, it, depending on the circumstances, uh, involved in you know providing for their offspring. Also because he wants to know that that's his kid. There are different ways of ensuring that the guy can be a complete a-hole and abuse his wife and control or, or girlfriend and, and um, follow her every action and try to control her actions. Or he can be loving and trusting and a great dad and a great boyfriend or husband, um, partner, whatever. Uh, so I think that humans are able to control their actions. We've come a long way over time also in terms of male violence. And it's not because of genetic changes, it's because of cultural changes. Um, I, yeah, so I think that, again, it's just completely dependent on the environment, the family environment, the religious environment, the political environment, and that uh, we're at a place now where if men are raping, they're gonna be uh, tossed out. Like it's, because who are you raping? Somebody else's, quote, somebody else's female. Like, this is not tolerated. So if even if you think of females as women, say, as somebody's property, rape is, is not allowed. I guess I'm just trying to make the case that uh, in, in we've evolved culturally to a point where men are not allowed in most cultures, say, in, in the United States or the UK, to just uh, beat the crap out of each other because socially that doesn't work for the group of people and children there has to be social norms that keep the local culture going and one of those norms is men can't be excessively violent um so he is the problem executed or put in jail or or ostracized or you know but the problem with that and i hear what you're saying and yes the social norms matter in this in this conversation because this is what feminists have been a part of in instilling yes. a set of social norms that are different from the social norms that conservative, including religious men, impose upon, quote unquote, their communities. Um, and, yes. and, you yes. know, everything, every piece of evidence tells us that sexual violence and abuse of women uh, domestically and externally is rife within particular conservative closed communities. And maybe that's because the police consider those communities to be um, to be no-go areas. For example, travellers and gypsies here in the UK, women talk 
talk to me about their daughters being sexually abused, married off at a very young age, men being able to go on the rampage, take sex from girls whenever they want it. They're then considered spoiled, and so when they marry, they're further punished. My brother-in-law is a Hasidic Jew from a deeply um, religious conservative community. And, you know, we have kind of good-natured arguments all the time about whether men in his community would ever do such a terrible thing. And of course they do. I mean, of course they do. So so I think in one way, um, the more conservative and closed a community is, the more that there is this, what I would call an illusion of strict social norms that mean you don't do this to women and children. And one other example I want to give, you know, I'm white. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree completely with you. Okay, well, we'll try and, we'll try and find something to argue about on this point because... <laughs> no, but, but that, I think, illustrates, partly supports my point in that uh, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. On the inside, the whole purpose, basically, I, there are a lot of religious people out there, but I think, you know, a lot of religions are about, ultimately male control of female sexuality um and under the guise you know this isn't i'm completely intentional but this is how cultural evolution works is this is adaptive for uh men to uh a certain extent more than women because they are exerting this power over women but it just becomes part of the culture and part of the religion and you have if you want to be a good person it's almost like what we're seeing now if you want to be a good person you have to have this specific set of beliefs right or else you're going to be punished by god etc so it's not like you're going to jail it's it's even worse it's you're a bad person and everyone's going to say you're a bad person and your reputation is going to suffer. And this is what happens in these closed conservative or other kinds of uh, religious communities, right? And it's the yeah. women who are bad. It's the women who are sluts. It's the women who have shamed themselves. So it's all about being good, not being shamed, being loved by and respected. And that's, you know, uh, transphobic, say, is a way of labeling people who have reasonable so in some cases, in many cases, have reasonable views. You know, there's obviously transphobia also, but uh, yeah, you're just a bad person, right? Yeah. So anyway, but that's that's another issue. But so I think you're kind of illustrating the point that um, the culture has a tremendous impact on those b- particular behaviors in men. It can it can support it and condone it, or. Uh, you know, there's just a whole huge variety of ways I think that plays out. But as long as men, if men, I think what you're saying in, in feminism is that men have the power, so they don't have a whole lot of incentive to relinquish it. I mean, why that's a difficult thing to do, uh, and, and we don't see that happening very often. So if there's going to be any real change, it needs to be women who are the real drivers of it. And that sounds right to me. However, I do think that together, people like you and people like me who want to integrate science into it can can be even more powerful than we can uh, if we're not on the same page. And a lot of feminists like vehemently disagree with me and hate that I wrote this book um, that is about how evolution and genes and hormones really help to explain not just why men are the way they are, but why we're different. And I really do think we are ultimately from the get-go, from being popped out of the womb and the vag. And, yeah. You know. I mean, look, you know, it was, 
what what got me um interested in the issue of how it it, it used to be termed transsexuality um was the anti-science or the bad science take on this and trust me when i tell you i'm no scientist and you know i i was absolutely appalled when back in the early 2000s i started to read more and more about um, these usually male male body people trapped in the wrong body where they really had a pink brain and they really were kind of born into the wrong sex and that these doctors, these psychiatrists and these surgeons were deciding that this was something called transsexuality. It was a condition. The only way that we could treat this um, was to take a surgeon's knife to healthy flesh um, and to and to, to reinforce this notion that there's something real about being trapped in the wrong body as opposed to some kind of condition relating to distress and dysphoria. And right. so so when I wrote about this in 2003, it was coming at it very much from the, we seem to be going backwards and ignoring the science that we really need to progress us as human beings. And at the time, there were two or three really good correspondents in the press, journalistic colleagues, who would write about bad science. One actually had a column called Bad Science. Yeah. And he wouldn't touch this topic. Right. And and what, what really distressed me when the bullies and the, the kind of, you know, extreme trans activists came after me when I published um, another piece the following year about women-only spaces and male violence was that I'd never seen such blatant misogyny ever in all of my decades of feminist campaigning and telling men what they should and shouldn't be doing, which normally kind of evokes their wrath. And this was misogyny on a scale I'd never experienced. And it was very much trying to, in my view, defend an anti-scientific position that had been presented to them by the likes of Judith Butler and the queer theorists and postmodernists as the new truth yeah and and science was completely out of the window and we're in a situation now nearly 20 years after i published my first piece where we're told there is no truth in science in fact we're told no, the opposite is, is true yeah okay so you're bringing together these pieces now about sort of science i i don't want to say science denialism i want to say extreme skepticism of the science of sex in feminism as you might see it that is now connected in an awkward way to the need for the reality of science in the current, uh, I do feel that I'm not allowed as a woman and as a scientist to do the work that I want to do and say what I believe. And um, there are males and females involved in uh, shutting that down. So, yeah, I don't think that people are born into the wrong body. I don't see, only because I don't see how that could work. I don't see evidence for it. I do believe that people are suffering. I think it's a product of gender non-conforming behavior, which you, so we have another disagreement here where you, you don't think that sexual orientation has a biological basis. I think in many cases, especially with males, it does less so uh, with females. I think there's much more wiggle room and uh, environmental influence there. 
But I think that does lead to gender nonconformity, especially in childhood. And that when you live in a gendered culture where there's expectations for each sex to behave and dress a certain way, this can lead to really, depending on the degree of gender nonconformity, you know, extreme dysphoria. And it depends, of course, how it's uh, handled, whether gender nonconformity is accepted or, or whether homosexuality is accepted. Uh, and so I think that's complicated. But it is science, in my view, that's going to help us learn how to best support these people who are suffering. And we are no, we have departed, like you said, people are not allowed to even do the science or write about the science or ask the questions that will help us produce the evidence that we need to determine how to best support people who are suffering in this particular way. But I want to bring this back to the, say, resistance in feminism to biological explanations. I don't think you can have it both ways because if you fear the truth, and I do think it's fear-based, you don't want to know almost if rape is an adaptation because it's inconvenient and it seems depressing. In my view, it's, it's knowledge and it's power and we know what we need to do. And that's how I feel about dysphoria and uh, how to help, especially kids who are um, suffering, is that we need more evidence and we need to be open to the truth, we need to discuss it openly. We need to have academic freedom. Like it's these academic institutions that should be out there producing this stuff and debating it and <coughs> criticizing people's ideas. And that's not allowed. So yeah, I see, I don't know if that's misogyny. I do think there is misogyny at work when there are males who, are, who get the extremely angry at women who are trying to produce or find the truth, which is that sex is real. That seems to some people to invalidate their identities. Therefore, I'm not supposed to do the work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, and it's and it's a great silencing tactic, isn't it? And it's kind of you know different century, same shit. And the progressives are now they're masquerading as progressives, and they can. You know, really, we know they want to call us cunts, they want to call us bitches, they want to call us whores, and instead they can call us transphobes. And, and, and you know, this is my take on it. It's, I, think, I think men on the left, and I am on the left, I think men on the left have never really sat comfortably. Most of them, not all. Some of them are great. Never sat comfortably with feminism within their movement because it's too much of a direct challenge to them. And why would they, as you say, want to relinquish power? But they can't actually say terrible things to us that are clearly misogynistic um, because it's not a good look. You know, what you what you have taught me, especially from your book, can you just say the name of it, the full name? Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation. Thank you. Because I learned so much from your, what I think is an incredible book and incredibly powerful, um, that it is about ultimately, and I think this is true, physical differences uh, between the sexes. So you accept that, that <clears throat> there are two sexes and that one sex has certain characteristics and those are immutable. Like generally, you know, with incredibly rare exceptions, having a womb and be needing, uh, to having the, I'll just say burden because it is a caloric 
and time uh, sync, but we're adapted to find this all pleasurable, which is interesting, you know, reproducing, right? So that restricts us in many ways. And it, but the fact that we do the physical act of reproducing helps to explain why we're smaller. I was fascinated, obviously, we were all fascinated. And ev- by the way, every feminist I work with um, that read your book appreciates it, loves it. And, oh, thank you. you know, ha- might have questions, but but basically learned so much and benefited from it. And the fascinating story about the chimpanzee, you mentioned it earlier on, um, in Uganda. Beating the female. Yes, where, be- yeah, be- beating the female, right. So he was beating his mate or his, you know, one of his pack. I don't know what chimpanzees are in. Are they in packs? Are they in groups? Communities. Okay. Um, and the headlines had it that he was a wife beater. I mean, for yeah. fuck's sake, wife beater. When did we yeah. get off with using that language? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that does imply that men do not have control over their behavior and that we're just like chimpanzees where the male actually, she will, he, he if he basically beats her, and I hate even to use this language, um, while she tried to protect her little kids, but this does function to increase her willingness to mate with him in the future, and it increases his paternity with her in particular. So the violence, unfortunately, in that way, does seem to pay, and it's an it's an adaptation for in chimpanzees. They're not going to um, stop and think about their actions, and they don't also form pair bonds and work together to raise their children like uh, humans do. Um, but that, yeah, so that is kind of sickening that there's a headline like that, that it does perpetuate this idea that I think feminists rightly would um, really cringe at and realize that this does send a message to men that they can't control themselves. And so we have to accept it. Those messages are wrong, you know, and, that, and so as a science educator, part of what I have tried to do is not undermine the science there, but the science that sort of can be distorted, but to teach about the distortion of science and what it means and what are the implications of these truths that we're finding. The implication is not that human beings cannot control their behavior. We can also use science to understand the ways in which we can control our behavior. And that's what I am trying to do. It is difficult. because of the way that journalism works, for instance. So I'm very irritated at, say, the New York Times or The Guardian or whatever publication it is that fails to accurately represent um, scientific findings and is tremendously biased to portray them as, um, you know, ideologically uh, palatable to their staff and their readership, right? And that's not doing anybody a service. So we've got problems in institutions, but and, but ultimately we have problems now within science and, and that's what I'm trying to attack. But I should just say the attacks on me have been damaging, uh, yeah, personally and professionally. And it's really that I have the audacity to, I think people perceive it as challenging their identity as, and and erase it erases, uh, say, trans people. If I say that you are the sex that you are, and that's it. Um, but I think what would help is if we 
differentiated sex and gender in a clear way instead of pretending that sex doesn't exist or that it must define every aspect of somebody's experience which it very doesn't and everyone should know that of course it doesn't um you can be female you can be a woman be a butch lesbian who has short hair and wears combat boots and works in a mine and doesn't want to have kids and goes to the bar and drinks two pints and gets in a bar fight Hang on a minute, um, hang on a minute, man, Carol. And we shouldn't, and, and it, you, it doesn't mean you're male. So P Point of information. Speaking as a lesbian um, who sometimes goes to bars, I'm a Brit. We need a damn sight more than two pints before we get into a bar fight, right? You lot are lightweights, right? We know how to drink here. Oh, my God. But, no, but I know you do. But you said you wanted to return to the issue about Sweden and about reporting rates and yeah. how that differentiates in societies where... It is less stigmatised to talk about sexual violence. Women do talk about sexual violence way more. This is one of the big, big victories and achievements of the women's movement, that women do speak right. out. And in fact, there was a, there's a great woman who died a few years ago called Louise Armstrong. She wrote the very first book about childhood sexual abuse in the family. And she was sexually abused by a male member of her family. And this book, published in the 70s, she said, you know, we, we, need, we need to start a conversation. We need to speak out. We need to talk. And then in her next book, written about 15, maybe 20 years later, called Rocking the Cradle, and again, it was about child sexual abuse. She said, listen, I said I wanted to start a conversation. But actually, that isn't all I wanted to do. How long have we been talking we need to change things. We need action. And this is my problem with the Me Too movement, which I think was a moment and not a movement. It's yet more. Me too. Me too. He abused me. I was raped. I was raped. And surely we need, we need action. But I just find it's it really sorry, difficult. So you're saying that consciousness, because I think that was consciousness raising. And that, that leads to action but what, yeah. so what do you mean when you say action i because that i do want to know how okay uh, yeah what, what does that mean two things first of all it means that it becomes that that rape becomes stigmatized for the rapist and not because he has his conscious prick, conscience pricked and he he thinks oh feminists are telling me not to rape i won't rape uh, so uh, how does it become stigmatized when men um we don't know what what they're saying when they all get together, right? Yeah. And there are no women <laughs> present. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's yeah, there is. I, I I know people don't like this, but I do think there's different sort of uh, gradations of rape. But we want to address all of that. But I think maybe part of what you're saying is that Me Too did not really go hard after the worst kind of suffering. Or what? What are you? And what kind of, yeah, and, and how do we then stigmatize rape? But, but also you talk a lot in your work about really going after the worst of it. And how, what, how do we do that? Well, you see, this, <laughs> this is where... That's a question. That's a whole other... Yeah, <laughs> well, this, this is where I have a huge dilemma with myself, although yeah. in some ways it's quite straightforward. I'm largely a prison abolitionist. I think that we should empty our jails, of everyone but dangerous individuals that are a danger to, to other human beings. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. 
and that, that's as far as it goes. We we shouldn't put poor people in prison, who yeah. who are in prison because of what life's dealt right. to them. We know all of that, but yeah. But I I know the the male pattern violence and the likelihood of repeat offending, repeat victimization, the message that gets stronger and stronger each time a man gets away with coercing his girlfriend into having sex, holding a knife at a stranger's throat. Um, we know about escalation. We know enough about the way that men's violence um, can, can, can happen, uh, especially when there are vulnerable victims, particularly vulnerable victims, that they target. So, so I think we need to threaten them and that for that threat to be a real threat with the criminal justice system. We cannot possibly do the whole trust circle, restorative justice, community responses to these dangerous offenders because they know at the moment, men know right now in my country, that they have something like eight times more chance of being raped than they do being arrested and charged with rape if they rape a woman. We have, from reporting through to, to, to the conclusion, we have under 1% conviction rate. So rape has been largely decriminalised, and so we need criminal justice responses. And that's how you stigmatise rape. Not by telling men it's not very nice to do it, and not by sitting yeah, them in a room with women who are crying so they can see their victim's response, but to really throw the book at them. Yeah, somehow you have to empower the victims to come forward, but they're not going to come forward until the until the changes are made within the criminal justice system where they're supported. So that involves women, uh, what supporting laws and or bills and candidates who prioritize these issues. Uh, no, like, I mean translate that into real things that women okay the, actions that women can take. Good question because here's the other dilemma. Yeah. So the parties, the political parties of law and order are usually right-wing reactionaries that could be anti-abortion, could be anti-lesbian and gay rights. They could be regressive in all kinds of ways, you know, have a baby and stay at home, don't work. Bad for women. And this is the failure of our left. Because we are largely liberal about our criminal justice system, as we should be, very, very few on the left, unless they're feminists like me, recognise that we need to think about criminal justice solutions, which involves carceration, to, uh, to address these problems. Because these are dangerous men committing crimes that, that really do cause terrible trauma, generational trauma, and cost our society dearly, not just the, the, the immediate victim. And so, so we can't, as a feminist on the left, I can't vote for these law and order reactionaries. But I see, especially in the US, some single issue women's rights campaigners. So the ones that are just rabidly against uh, trans women going into the bathrooms or um, they have some other issue, but it's not connected to a broader feminist approach. Right, right. And, and they would literally vote for Trump. If Trump said he won't allow uh, trans women in public bathrooms, well, that's a disgrace. That's a disgrace. I agree. So it is these issues about biological predisposition. I, I, want, I hope that you are convinced that 
having a predisposition, say for physical aggression, um, relative to males having that predisposition in the right circumstances relative to females. So that if you have the same basic stimulus, like a threat or somebody getting up in your face, um, that the male is more likely to use physical aggression than the female. And that this does have root biological roots that are related to different yes. reproductive strategies. Yes. Males can benefit reproductively from that on average, just say, across animals and potentially in human evolutionary history. Females cannot. For our reproduction, it's better to stay alive and healthy. Um, okay, so there's that. And do you, would you, so if you just look at kids and boys like to, to they do do, you know, higher rate, engage in higher rates of rough and tumble play. They want to pin each other down. They do this everywhere. They tackle each other. They love it. Two girls hardly, almost never do that as a play style. And you see this in non-human animals. You see it in rodents. You see it in apes. Um, the same patterns in juveniles where males do this far more than females. So would you, um, Julie Bendel, would you say that you, that you would be open to the idea that, because that's setting the stage for dominance competition, physical dominance competition in adulthood. Those play styles really have something to do with how we behave as adults. Um, would you say that those differences are in heavily influenced or strongly influenced by genes ultimately? And testosterone, it's testosterone in utero. Boys have a huge amount of it affecting their bodies and brains. Yes, I accept, of course, that those behaviours are influenced by genes. The extent to mm -hmm. which they're influenced by genes and the way that often it can be used as a catch-all excuse or justification is another issue. But yes. I think um, at I one stage, <clears throat> I mean, at one stage, um, you know, when, when I suppose social constructionism that made such sense to me because of the way that males are privileged. I grew up with two brothers in a working class household, very traditional in the northeast of England. My grandmother used to give bigger portions to the boys of food. They were allowed to leave their shoes just thrown mm. across the room. And I was the one, the girl that would that would uh, tidy up after them. And it was expected, even oh, though my, you know, my mother's a- Were a, you the youngest? I mean, are you- Middle, <laughs> middle. Okay. So, so, you know, I had a great, mother who's for her time very um forward thinking and not in any way entrenched in that but it was so that the, the, the role the set the sex stereotypes within my yeah. community they're always much more pronounced and visible in working yes. class communities because yeah. you don't have the, the the kind of flowery language to dress it up and disguise it as something else and so I latched on to social constructionism because, of course, it's a really helpful theory. It means that we could also do away with issues about the criminal gene. You know, I was told I was going to end up in jail because I grew up in that community. And therefore, you know, poor people or, or, or working class people who aren't educated are much more likely to have this criminal gene when we know it's about circumstances. It's That's about... Right. Yeah. And so, so I think... It's all in the mix. It's all genes, yes. environment. It's all in the mix. I and went too far. Very strong influences on, you know, individual, I think, and group. Yeah, I went, I went too far. I took it to its logical, for me, conclusion 
of the nth degree. And I was, I was too ready to throw out the other issues that are so crucial in understanding okay. this issue. And, and I think that that's, uh, that's why I want to thank you for your book. Not only is it a really cracking, brilliant read, that you, you just, I mean, it seriously is one of the most interesting um, non-fiction books I've read in a long time. But it also helped me dare to say, oops, I think that I definitely went too far. Oh and here's, I, here's... I died and gone to heaven. And I also have to say, in writing the book and in talking about it, I have become so much more convinced of the that environment is everything. The answers are there, and we, you know, an understanding of the power of the role of biology in our behavior helps me to see how important it is that we never let up, yep. because this is going to be a constant challenge. Uh, yeah. So you know the the. I suppose the, the last line is the evolutionary biologist and the feminist campaigner walked into a bar. But <laughs> the feminist campaigner definitely drank more than <laughs> the biologist. Anyway, it's been, it's been wonderful to talk to you, Carol, and let's carry on this conversation. Too, Julie. I, mean, I mean, I think we'll get, I hope we'll get a really um, strong reaction from this with comments, with questions, and maybe we can... We can do this again sometime in the in the not-too-distant future. I would really love that. I find Carol's work fascinating, and she's so accessible in the way that she explains complicated science, as you've just heard. Thank you for listening. And in the next couple of weeks, we have a guest who is a global lesbian icon and very well known for something else, too. Coming soon. Yeah.